I felt like that it would be appropriate to preach a sermon tonight about the new year and to entitle the message, Staying with God in 2024, because that's what we want to do. We want to not only be with God at the beginning of the year, but we want to stay with God throughout the year. So that being said, if you'll open your Bible tonight to the book of 2 Chronicles, it's an unusual place to have a New Year sermon, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, I want us to begin tonight by looking at a verse that I never had known anything about until almost 20 years ago, and I read this verse, and it spoke to my heart in a very personal way, and I'm praying tonight that it will have a similar effect uh, in your life. Now, let me give you a little bit of the background of how I came across this verse. When I was at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth from 1992 until 1995, I met a guy my age named Jarrett Birch. Jarrett was from the great state of Georgia, which is where I am from, and so we hit it off with our Georgia connection, and we just were, had a lot in common. And so I always liked Jarrett, and we had developed a tremendous friendship there when we were going through seminary. And when we graduated, we graduated on the same day, I came to Pasadena to work at First Baptist, and Jarrett went uh, eventually to Louisville, Kentucky, where he got a Ph.D. at Southern Seminary in church history. Jarrett is the smartest church historian, not in the world, but among my circle of friends. Baptist history, church history, world history, American history, Georgia history. I don't know how much he knows about Texas history, but he knows about the other histories. And he's always an interesting guy to talk to. Well, when he graduated from Southern Seminary with his Ph.D., he went back to Georgia, and he began what I would call an unusual and interesting career. He got a job teaching Georgia history at a junior high school about an hour from where he lives. And then, at the same time, he was called to pastor two small country churches in the opposite direction, about an hour and a half from where he lives. And so here's a fellow with a Ph.D. teaching junior high and pastoring two churches at the same time. Well, in the spring of 2004, Jarrett called me and said, Hey, John, one of these churches where I'm, well, in fact, both of the churches, it was their tradition to have a summer revival. And he said, Would you be willing to come out here in July and preach a revival at one of these churches? The name of the church was Mount Moriah Baptist Church. He said, Would you be willing to fly to Atlanta, come down here and preach a revival to this country church? I said, Jared, I will be willing to do that under one condition. He said, what is it? I said, the condition is, I know you live a long way from the church. I know the services will start late at night. There'll be fellowships after the church. We'll be midnight or close to midnight getting home. And then preach go back the next night, and I'm supposed to be ready to preach at 7. I said, I'll come to preach revival if you will leave me alone in the mornings. You'll let me rest in a little bit longer than normal. I don't want to go have breakfast meetings with any of your preacher friends. I'll meet them at lunch, but I don't want to meet them at breakfast. And and I want to read my Bible, and I want to pray. And then after lunch, I'll do whatever you want me to do, as long as in the afternoon you give me about two hours to start getting ready for the sermon that night. So I'm going to be, you know, I've got those parameters. But if you can agree to that, I will come. He said, I agree to that, no problem. And so I flew to Atlanta, went down to 
almost South Georgia, down below Macon, to preach this revival. And it was a wonderful revival. In fact, while I was there, I got to preach on that Sunday at both of his churches. And in the years to come, I ended up going back there five or six times preaching revivals in both of those churches. And some of those people became blessings in my life. And it was a sweet experience. Interestingly, this is an aside, but the last time I was there preaching, he and I were driving down one of those back Georgia roads in his pickup truck. And it was like God spoke to my heart. And God said to me, this will be your last time to come down to this, these churches and preach a revival. Your work here is done. And so he called me years later, and I never have been back because I felt like God said, that was an opportunity, that was for a season, that season is ended, your work is done. So I never have been back. But the years I went were wonderful years. Well, one of those years, in fact, it was the first year that I went, I was doing what I intended to do in the morning. I was reading my Bible. And I was praying. I wasn't looking at a sermon. I wasn't thinking about the service that night. I was thinking about John and, and, and where I am in my relationship with God and how I need to be reading my Bible and growing. And, and so I had that year, I was reading the one-year Bible out of this green Bible, the Living Bible. And uh, I've read through this Bible many times for my Bible reading. I'm not doing that this year, but I, I have done this many times. And on this particular day... It was July the 21st, 2004. In my reading, I came to 2 Chronicles chapter 15 in the Living Bible. And let's just look at it in verses 1 and 2. Now, this is going to read differently than what you have. But here's what I read almost 20 years ago. Then the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet King Asa. Now, King Asa is the king we're studying about tonight. He's one of the greatest kings that Judah ever had. He loved God. He was devoted to God. He was a good king. But on this particular day, this man of God comes to King Asa, and here's what he says. Listen to me, Asa. Listen, armies of Judah and Benjamin, he shouted. And here's the phrase. The Lord will stay with you, as long as you stay with him. Wherever, whenever you look for him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. I can still remember the room that I was sitting in that morning, reading out of this Bible a verse that I never had paid any attention to, and especially this phrase, the Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. Say that with me. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. And I'll read you. This is not too personal. I dated it July the 21st, 2004. I put by that verse, praise the Lord. And I wrote this, help me to always stay with you, God. And on that particular day, when I read that verse, it was as though God had given me a clear message for my own life and the message was, John, if you'll stay with me, keep trusting me and keep serving me, I will stay with you. Now, there is a sense in which God's going to stay with us no matter what we do. I mean, if we're truly saved, God's never going to leave us or forsake us. But what is being said here is there's another sense that God will stay with us in anointing power, in useful service, in effective ministry, in blessing upon blessing upon blessing in our lives. He will stay with us 
like that if we stay with him. If you're reading the Bible reading plan that I'm currently reading now, one that we've provided here, you, it's a two-year plan. You just finished Second Chronicles in December, and I, that's what I did. And when I did, I read through this in a different translation, but I read that verse, and it's been on my mind ever since. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. And so as I've thought about tonight, the first sermon of 2024, on a Wednesday night, we don't have the crowd in here tonight that we had on Christmas Eve, but we have a good group. And it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'd always rather see a huge crowd. But whether it's many or whether it's few or whether it's somewhere in between, when we come into the house of God and open the Word of God and begin to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying through His Word, there's someone here tonight who needs to be challenged in your life as clearly as I was confronted by that verse in my life 19 and a half years ago, at a crucial time in my life, at a critical time in my life, at a time in my life when I'm trying to figure out, God, what, am I, what in the world am I supposed to do? And right out of heaven, God said to me, here's what you're supposed to do. You stay with me, and if you will stay with me, keep trusting me, keep serving me, Keep preaching. You keep on keeping on. If you will stay with me, then I will stay with you. And I can't help but believe tonight in this room there's somebody or listening at home tonight, somebody at a crossroads, maybe circumstantially different, but at a crossroads where at the beginning of this year you need a word from God. And I believe we have one tonight. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. But if you get away from God, you're on your own. Now, the question tonight that I want us to think about is this. How can we stay with God? I mean, obviously, everyone here tonight wants to stay with God. But the question is, how can we do that? Now, I want to just, from the life of Asa, we're going to break his life down pretty good tonight. But from his life, I want to bring out two major points tonight, only two. But I want to develop both of these points fairly thoroughly And I think it will be the best way for us to approach this tonight. How can we stay with God? Number one, by doing the right thing. By doing the right thing. In 2 Chronicles, now turn back to chapter 14. Here's where we're introduced to Asa. His father's name, uh, Abijah. And uh, Abijah had died. And now Asa has become the king. And in verse 2, we read this. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was quiet under him." And so Asa, we read here that he was a good, he was good. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he was a man who was committed to doing the right thing. Now, when he's out there tearing down all these altars, all across Jerusalem and all of Israel, they had built these shrines, these altars, to Canaanite deities. And the Jewish people would go, oh well, sometimes the Canaanites previously, but even the Jews joined in on it, they were offering up sacrifices from these, from these pagan altars. And so God was not pleased with that. At that time, God wanted to be worshipped in Jerusalem. 
And so uh, Asa goes out and he tears down these altars. Now, when he did that, it was not an easy thing to do. It took effort. It took discipline. It took time. It took perseverance. And it, but before all that, it took a decision. In other words, Asa had to say, I am making a decision as king over these people to do the right thing. And part of the right thing was removing from the land everything that dishonored God. And it makes us think tonight, is there anything in our lives as we begin this new year that dishonors God? And if there is, we ought to get away. We ought to do away with it. We ought to tear it down. We ought to be done with the thing that displeases uh, the Lord. And so Asa made a decision, I will do what's right. Now, as I was preparing this sermon today, I just began thinking about some of the things that are right for us to do. Certainly, if there's sin in our lives or something going on like that in our lives, we need to deal with that and remove those, remove those altars and those, those, uh, those shrines. But there are other things tonight that we know to be the right thing to do, and I want to just mention some of these. First of all, it's right to read your Bible every day. If you agree with that, say Amen. It's right to read your Bible every single day. When we read the Bible, certainly we get information, we get inspiration, we get insights, we get nuggets, we get truths. But when we read the Bible, the main thing we're getting is a word from God. Now, just to tell you how meaningful daily Bible reading is, the plan I'm on right now has me in Ezra in the Old Testament and Acts in the New Testament. And I'm actually a few days ahead, and uh, it's just how it is. But in the last few days, I have read Ezra chapter 7 and Ezra chapter 8. And in those two chapters, six times, I'm reading this at home. This is my Bible reading. Nothing to do with First Baptist Church or a sermon. My own devotion reading. In Ezra chapters 7 and 8, on six different occasions... I counted this phrase, or a variation of this phrase, the hand of the Lord our God was among us. I just kept reading that. Ezra's talking about what he's experiencing in his life. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Uh, Somebody else said, the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. Somebody else said, the hand of the Lord was upon us. And so as I read that, I thought, God, that's what it needs to be with me and with us, that your hand, that the hand of our God would be upon us uh, in the new year. And that's just something I got just by reading my Bible. So we know that it's right to read our Bible, and I encourage you, if you haven't gotten a plan, it's not too late to get a plan. Don't get one that makes you read too much, just a little bit. Or even if you don't have a plan, make up your own plan. But just read something out of the Bible every day. And when you read your Bible, don't view it like you've taken your car to the car dealership and it's a multi-point inspection and they're just checking things off. When you get your Bible and you open your Bible, yeah, you've got your reading. But you want to say, now, God, today, I don't just need information. And I, what I need is inspiration and insight and wisdom and a word from you And God will give it to you. This book is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So we know that it's right to read our Bibles every day. That means if it's right to do that, then it's wrong not to do that. And so I would encourage you to read your Bible every day. I'll tell you something else we know that it's right to do. It's right to pray. It's right to have a time every day where you pray, where you get alone with God and it's quiet. 
And you can just pray and you can pour out your heart to God. Yesterday in staff meeting, first staff meeting of the year. And um, I, my dad's been out this week. He got a little bug of something, and so he's better, but he's not, not been at work yet this week. And, uh, and so I, I said, well, look, what I think we need to do in this staff meeting, he and I had decided this together before he kind of got a little under the weather. We said we want to just spend staff meeting on Tuesday praying. Instead of going in there and going over some long agenda, I mean, hey, it's the day after New Year's. Nobody's ready for that. Let's just pray. And so we, we had a prayer time yesterday, and we're just praying around the table and about whatever, thanking God for the blessings of last year, praying for the hand of God to be on us this year, praying for those who are sick. As Jimmy mentioned, Sly has COVID, had to back out of the trip to Atlanta. Chris is on that. We had other staff out. But we're just praying for all these different things. And at the end of the meeting, everybody went back to their offices except for me and Jimmy. And we were sitting there talking, and I said, you know, Jimmy, we've got this emphasis that I wanted us to have in January, in, in a couple of weeks on a Sunday, where we encourage everybody in the church to, invite, to, to begin to pray about an unsaved or unchurched family member or friend that this year, at the early part of this year, they would come to First Baptist for a service, that, if, that they would get saved if they're not already saved, and that, that we could just have some kind of like an outreach emphasis. And we, we're working on doing that in the first couple of weeks of the year. And part of that is we, want to incur, we wanted to have something, or I did, wanted to have something special here at the church on February the 11th, Super Bowl Sunday. Because we know that night that the Texans and the Cowboys will be playing, right? And so we wanted to have something that morning to stimulate everybody even before they got into the Texas and the Cowboys game later on that day. And so I said, well, you know what, we, could, we have options. We could have special refreshments in the commons. We could have Frito chili pie. We could have, I mean, all these different options we're going through. I said, I really think, though, the best thing to do would be to bring, to do something in the service that would be different. And uh, we just had Dr. Kendall here. We have a guest speaker coming in in February, James Brown from CBS. We think he's coming back in the spring. And we felt like we've got some good things going there. Maybe we could bring in something, somebody musical on February the 11th that would just be different, just something different. And it might encourage some of our members to invite their friends. So we've already got the little cards that we're going to pass out in early January. I know somebody. Write their name down, pray for them, and invite them to church on January the 11th. The only problem is we don't have anybody who's scheduled to come on February the 11th who's different. And I thought, well, maybe what we could do is Jimmy could preach and my dad and I will lead the singing. And, and that would be, be different. That will empty the room out if we tried that. But we've, they've contacted some different musicians. It was all kind of late notice, really. And we just weren't having much success. Well, so yesterday... There, interestingly, there was one singer that I had thought would be good for this, but I hadn't mentioned him because, you know, I want the music people to take the lead in that. I don't want to jam my ideas down their throat. Well, yesterday in the meeting, just Jimmy and me, now we had just spent a half hour praying, and we weren't even praying about this, but we were praying God on the church, God bless us. Jimmy says to me, he said, you know, John, there's a name that Chris and I have both talked about who would be good in both services. In the first service, he could sing with the choir and sing 
that type of music, but in the second service, he could sing with the praise. I said, who is it? And he said, well, he sings with the Gaither vocal band, Adam Crabb. And I said, you know, it's funny you mention that. I had thought about Adam Crabb myself. I said, I just assumed that the Gaithers were on tour that weekend, and, you know, you can't get them. And he said, well, it's interesting. I looked up the Gaither tour dates, and they're not on tour that weekend, which lets us know Bill Gaither wants to watch the Super Bowl, right? That's how they're not. And, And I said, well, my brother's friends with him. If you want me to check and see, so I called my brother. I said, hey, can you get with Adam Crabb and see if he might? He, he said, I'll, my brother called, text me back in five minutes. He's free. He's committed to come to First Baptist Church on February the 11th. We have Adam Crabb in both morning, both morning services. Now, the point of that is we were going to look mighty foolish standing out here saying, y'all all invite your friends. to. We're going to do something very different on February 11th. And everybody coming here on February 11th say, nothing looks different to me. And I'm going to say it was his idea or it was their idea. It wasn't my idea, but it was my idea actually. But the point is, I believe that God opened that door as a direct answer to prayer that we had just prayed. I'm going to tell you something. And I'm not a well, I actually am opposed to some meetings because I think some meetings, could not, I'm not saying staff, but just some, some meetings. I, I'll say this. <laughs> the best use of time that you can have is prayer. Amen? Because a lot of time, I mean, you do have to have meetings and make sure, you know, what, what, you know fix this, fix that. What's wrong here? Who's not happy here? What, we got to get everything. I, I mean, you can't just ignore the response. I get that. But I'm saying... In the midst of all that, a few moments of prayer might be greatly honored by the Lord. And it certainly was yesterday. And we, and we, do, we do pray in our meetings. I'm just saying yesterday was, was a special time. Let me tell you something else about that's right for us to do. It's right to honor God in your finances. In fact, I want to write a booklet called Honoring God in Your Finances. And maybe one day I can have time to do that. But I talked a little bit about that Sunday. As I mentioned, on New Year's Eve... I like to have, or New Year's Day, somewhere around the beginning of the year, a a time of prayer where I thank God for his financial provisions in the previous year, and I set a financial goal for the new year. And I say to God, God, I pray if it could be your will that you would make this financial provision. And we pray that for the church, and we pray it for our personal lives. Listen, as I said on Sunday, money is not the most important part of our lives. Not even close. But money is part of our lives. I went to a restaurant last night, picked up something, took it home to eat it. But when it got time to pay, I didn't say to the lady who wanted my money, well, you know, I just want you to know I trust God for things like this. I mean, she would have said, well, that's a beautiful thing. But along with that, we need $15 here before you get get these tacos. Well... Uh, you know, so money's not the most important part of our lives, but it's a part of our lives. You got to have it to live. And so it's right to honor God with our finances and to put him first and to tithe and to, and to have some kind, whether it's written out or just in your own mind, some kind of an idea of how to spend money and to be somewhat disciplined with that. I'm working on a booklet right now called Jesus Cares. And, uh, and in that booklet, I made the statement that we should all seek to live well below our means. Well below our means. Because if you, or at least below your means. Because if you live at your means, 
you better hope. I mean, that, that's kind of getting tight if you're just, you know, you got to get this coming in to pay everything. Now, just to break even, there's some pressure on that. And if you live above your means, you're digging yourself out of a hole that you can't dig out of. It's just going to get deeper and deeper until you make a change. And so we want to honor God with our finances. I, I, Warren Buffett is a, uh, I guess he's considered one of, if not the, the greatest investor, one of the greatest investors in American history. He's 93 years old if you keep up with him and his work associate for many years, Charlie Munger, who just died uh, about a month ago, uh, just a few days shy of his 100th birthday. And these two guys run that Berkshire Hathaway company and have for years. And, and uh, you know, Warren Buffett has been on my mind and on my heart. In fact, I wish you would pray for this. I've, I've had it on my heart to write him a letter. Because every year in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, they have this deal. I've never been, but they have it where all these people come and ask Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger financial questions. But I've seen it on television, and I've pulled up clips on YouTube. And I pulled up one after Munger, Charlie Munger died, and somebody said to those two men, the two of, they said, the two of you are financial geniuses. You're multi-billionaires. Multi, multi and, and Munger, a billionaire too. Do you men have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And Munger said, this is all public, so I'm not speaking out of turn. Charlie Munger said, I would rather not talk about religion. And Warren Buffett said, I'm an agnostic. You know what an agnostic is, right? The word agnostic, like an atheist, means that person, does, he doesn't believe in God. A theist, the, theist is the root of that, is God. Theos is the word for God. But an atheist, you put the word A in front of it, anti-God. They don't believe in God. The A negates it, right? Well, an agnostic, the root word is gnosis, the Greek word gnosis, to know. But you put that A prefix in front of gnosis, it means I, I don't know. I'm against knowledge. I don't know. And so Buffett gave an honest answer, a thorough answer. He said, I honestly don't know if there is a God or not. And he said, one day when I die, I'll find out. And it's been on my heart, and I wish you would just pray that I would do this, whether he would ever get my letter or read it or not, but to write him a kind letter and to tell him how much I admire many of his, what I would just call common sense, financial principles to live by, but also to share with him how you can know that there is a God and that Jesus can come to live in our hearts. But all that said, you know, we're not talking about living below your means. Warren Buffett lives well below his means. He, he, he's lived in the same house, he and his wife, for uh, 40 or 50 years. And he said, in something I read of him, he said, if I thought that buying a newer and a bigger house would make me happy, make me happier, I'd go buy a newer, bigger house. But I'm happy in the house that I have. He said, if I thought buying 10 houses would improve the quality of my life. 
I would go buy 10 houses. He said, but if I bought 10 houses, I would be less happy because now I've got to keep up with 10 houses. He has such great wisdom, such great common sense, except this one area has me concerned, and I wish we would pray for, for him, that God would reveal truth to him that he could know. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make, and how I got off on him, uh, he and others who are wise in that field, uh, certainly the Bible supersedes all such earthly wisdom, and the Bible certainly teaches this, but that we should, we should be wise with our financial decisions, that we should live below our means. Listen, friend, if you can't be happy in the house you live in, you can't be happy in any house. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a new house. If you need a bigger house, go buy it if you can afford it. But your happiness is not going to come from a newer, bigger house. Your happiness comes from Jesus. Your happiness is not going to come from a new car. You know, somebody said to me, time, time back, John, you've, got, you've been driving that car forever. When are you going to get a new one? I thought, well, when this one quits running. I mean, this one's still working fine for me. And that doesn't mean I won't go buy one next year. But, I mean, I'm happy with what I'm not. I wouldn't be any happier. If I went out tonight and brought a brand-new car, I would be no happier than I am with my 2007 Toyota 4Runner. I'm most happy with what I have. But my happiness doesn't come from the car. My happiness comes from the one who's in the car with me, J-E-S-U-S. My happiness doesn't come from my house. I like my house. My happiness comes from the fact that Jesus is in my house. When I walk in my house tonight, Jesus Christ will be just as real to me in that house, if not more so than he is right now in, in, this, in, this, in his house, in church. Because my house is his house too. They're all his house. So it's right to honor God with our finances. Number next, it's right to come to church. You're doing that tonight, and I won't belabor that. It's right to resist temptation. We're all tempted. Sometimes we give in. But I'll tell you this. The next time you're tempted to sin, and you're trying to figure out if you're going to do the right thing or the wrong thing, think about how happy you'll be if you resist the temptation. And think about how bad you'll feel if you give in to the temptation. And if you sin. And so, what do we need to do? We need to, at the beginning, how do we stay with God? We stay with God by doing the right thing. Now, you still listen? Say amen. amen. Doing the right thing. That, that's the first point. Now, we're just now coming to the second point. And the second point is longer than the first point. And I'm sitting up, standing up here thinking, Maybe the right thing would be to end the sermon now and do the second point next week. If you like that idea, say amen. Okay, well, you want it. You sound like you might want more of this. But uh, I think maybe the right thing. I, let me go ahead and give you the point. But I want to come back next week because we have some tremendous scripture here in Chronicles about Asa. Let me give you the point. Not only do we honor and to stay with God by doing the right thing, we stay with God by turning to the Lord and by trusting in him. When trouble comes. By turning to the Lord and by trusting in Him when trouble comes. Now, I do want to wait till next week on this because I can cover it better. But what we're going to see as we, we'll do a two-week study on Asa, and then maybe the next week or the week after we'll ask God to help us start a new series. But what we're going to see is Asa, as good of a king as he was, as godly of a man as he was, in these chapters, he gives us one good example on turning to the Lord and on trusting the Lord when he faced trouble. 
But also in this same context, he gives us two examples of failing to trust in the Lord, of failing to do the right thing. Now, I'm going to hold off on that until next week, but I will jump down tonight to the conclusion that I originally had. And here's what I had written in my, in my notes. How do we stay with God? Number one, by doing the right thing. Number two, by turning to the Lord and trusting in Him when trouble comes. Then I wrote this. You say, but John, I haven't always done the right thing. Folks, look. Nobody has always done the right thing. The only person who has always done the right thing is Jesus. In this book that I'm working on, I'm editing it late, late last night about Jesus cares. And I'm doing a section about Jesus cares about our guilt and our regrets. And in the section, I ask this question. Have you ever committed a sin, and as soon as you committed that sin, you were filled with guilt and regret and shame. And then I answered my own question. Yes, we all have. And then I followed that answer up with this explanation. Now you think about this. This is now there may be not in here tonight, but there may be some legalist, Christian legalist in the world who point out everybody else's sin. But they would say, no, 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 I, I, I've never committed a sin that I feel, you know, shameful about or dirty about or that I really regret. So I put this sentence in my booklet. What sin could a person commit and not regret committing it? Now you think about that. We think about adultery and something immoral or something illegal. Oh, yeah, well, that, you do that, you better regret that. Well, I mean, but think about this. In all honesty, what sin could any Christian commit? No matter how big we may say or how little we may, what sin is there that you could commit in thought, word, or deed, and after committing it, not feel guilty about it? And then I said this in my little booklet. If you say that you have never done anything you regret, that means one of two things. It means you've either never sinned, which we know that's not true because the Bible says all have sinned, or it means you have no conscience and you don't care. I regret every sin that I have ever committed, past, present, Mind, thought, word, deed, any sin. How, and so tonight I asked this question, how do we stay with God? By doing the right thing. And when I say that, immediately sometimes we think, well, I haven't always done the right thing. Sometimes I've done the wrong thing, and now it's a new year. And there may be someone here tonight saying, it's 2024, but I've come to the service tonight, and I'm regretting, and I'm feeling guilty over something I did in 2023. Well, you know what we need to do? We need to deal with that tonight and just get that out before the Lord. Let his blood wash that sin away and let him cleanse your heart. In my Bible reading today, this morning, I read Ezra 10 and Acts 10. And in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 2, 
the Jewish people had committed a terrible sin, and God was calling them on it. God was angry with what they had done. And one of the leaders said this to all these people. They gathered all the people together, and many of the people who were gathered together had committed this particular sin. Ezra chapter 10 and verse 2. Here's what the Scripture says. We have sinned against our God. In in my translation, it literally said, we have trespassed against our God. You know, we see a sign sometimes that says, no trespassing. There's this line right here. Police, uh, the po- police put a line up here. No trespassing. Don't cross that yellow tape. Now you walk over here. Well, now they got you for trespassing. Well, it's the same word in the Bible. That's what happens when we sin. God has put up a line, said don't do that. We crossed that line, and now we did it. It literally says, we have trespassed against our God. Now listen to this next part of this verse. Yet now... There is hope in Israel in spite of this. this. This leader said, hey, look, we've sinned against God. We've messed up. We crossed a line. We did something God told us not to do. And now everybody was weeping and crying and feeling guilty and shameful and bad for what they have done. And this leader rose up and he said, we have blown it in the eyes of God. We have done the thing God told us not to do. But in that same verse, he said, yet... Now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. What was the hope? That if they would repent of that sin, in verse 3, they began to repent of their sin, that God would forgive them. The old hymn says, though we have sinned, there is mercy and pardon. And that verse has, been, has gripped me today. As we can identify, the sins are different, but so we've, we've, all, we've all committed sin. We have sinned against our God, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. And in my notes right here, I wrote, there's hope in Pasadena tonight too. Because the same mercy and grace of God that applied to those Jews in Jerusalem thousands of years ago is still available to us tonight. And so at the beginning of this year, do the right thing. Look, you're in church on January the 3rd. We had staff meeting back in December. We're trying to figure out the, the holiday schedule, and it's been so busy. We've had so many Christmas services and holiday services, two New Year's Eve services. I mean, it just it, it, God blessed them all. People saved and all these services. It's phenomenal. And we had a meeting one day, and I said to my dad, I don't think we need to come back on Wednesday night, January the 3rd. I think we need to come back on Wednesday, January the 10th. School hadn't even started back. Some of the schools don't go back till the 8th. I think we need to come back on the 10th, not the 3rd. He said, I'm the pastor. We're coming back on the 3rd. And I got to call him tonight and say, where were you on the front row? On the... He said, no, John, I know this church. I know these people. He said, people want to get back in church as quick as they can. Well, he's right on that. And so what I'm saying is, you're the most faithful of the faithful. You're the remnant, to use a biblical line. I mean, you're the, you're the cream of the crop. You're, the mo- you're here on Wednesday night, January the 3rd. I mean, Alabama and Texas have barely been eliminated from the college football playoff, right? I mean, they were nearly still going. Now we've got Washington, and we've got uh, Michigan, and that game should be in the Rose Bowl, not in Houston, right? That doesn't fit in Houston, really. But anyway, it's going to be in Houston. On the first Wednesday night of the year, some of you I know, some of you, you say, I don't know who you are, fella, up there talking. But you've got a sermon tonight. You're telling us at the beginning of the year we need to do the right thing. 
And I'm telling you, you've done the right thing tonight by being here. But some of you are probably thinking, yeah, I did the right thing tonight. But five years ago, I did the wrong thing. Or New Year's Eve, you might be thinking, I did the wrong thing. You know what's funny about New Year's Eve? People do things on New Year's Eve they never would do on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, we're all at church talking about a baby being born and singing Silent Night, and our hearts are tender toward Jesus. And on New Year's Eve, people are going out and getting drunk. And place, and, and I don't understand it. But, but, but anyway, maybe you did something like that. And you think, man, John, I, I was in church on New Year's Eve morning, and then that night, I can't believe what I did. Well, just say with this man in Ezra chapter 10, I have sinned against the Lord my God, yet now... There is hope in spite of this because ours is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness and new beginnings and second chances and clean starts. And he can forgive us where we failed us and he can enable us and empower us as we move forward tonight and into the new year by his grace and by his grace alone to do the right thing. Amen. Father, forgive us for all the times. Forgive me for times in my life when I've done the wrong thing when I've said the wrong thing, when I've thought the wrong thing, forgive us all, God, for our sins. We regret them all. But God, as we ask you to forgive us, we receive by faith that cleansing blood of Jesus. And we ask you tonight to help us to learn this from King Asa, that you can empower us and enable us to do the right thing. And so, God, help us in 2024 to make a fresh commitment when faced with temptation, when in a heated conversation about politics or some other subject, and we want to just show how right we are and how crazy everybody else is. God, help us to remember that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And the person who restrains his words is wise. Knowing that if we'll sometimes just keep our mouth shut, when that conversation's over, we'll be glad that we didn't say something that we regret. God, help me, help us in 2024 to do the right thing. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name.